welcome you all this morning. Glad to have you with us. And I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation. And we're still in chapter 3, still in the letter to the church of Philadelphia. That's going to start in verse 7 of chapter 3. We're going to be getting through the second half of that this morning. Before we dive too deeply into that, let's read the entire letter together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So last week we came through verse 9 left off there, and we're going to pick up in verse 10, but let's do a real quick rundown of what we went over last week. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Philadelphia was founded by Eumenes and Attalus. They were two brothers, and Eumenes was the older. Their fondness for each other, their love and respect, loyalty, earned them the cognomen, which is like a Roman last name, if you will, um, of Philadelphia, brotherly love. So the city actually took on their founder's last name, so to speak, and the city was called Philadelphia. That is actually where it comes from. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Holy means set apart. You're distinct, and no doubt God is distinct from his creation. He who is true, and the more true meaning of that word is genuine. God is holy. He's set apart. He's genuine, and it's nice to have someone genuine in our lives. He who has the key of David. This key of David is referenced back in... Was it Isaiah 22? I'm drawing a blank now. Something 22. I've got it written later in my notes. And this specific verse was referencing the key of David, which was handed down from Shebna to Eliakim. And we looked at that. And this key of David, this signifies the authority to grant access to the king. So Shebna lost that authority. Eliakim, when he got the key of David, um, he was able to grant or deny access 
to the king. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. God obviously opens doors in our lives. Personally, um, in the mission field, he opens doors. And in the hearts of each one that he draws to him, he opens doors. So he opens them and no one can shut them. But the converse of that is that every door that he shuts, no one can open. He shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, speaking to the church in this city. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. They have a little strength. They don't have a lot of strength. You know, they were, they were actually small in number as well. But they have a little strength. And they have kept his word. Kept means safeguarded. They've safeguarded, they've preserved the integrity of his word and have not denied his name. You know, his name is a mark of his authority. And we'll see much more on his name, the name of his city, and Christ's name at the end of this letter. And have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, this is basically saying that he will give some of this group called the synagogue of Satan, whoever that may be, he will give them as converts and they will come before the overcomer's feet or those who accept Christ. They will come before our feet and worship God, not worship us. Of course, we don't deserve any worship at all. But God is saying he will give them as converts and they will worship him and Notice, and to know that I have loved you. That's pretty cool. And that brings us to verse 10, where we're really going to dig our heels in this morning. And even before we really get into that, I want to give you some more historical background on the city of Philadelphia. So the people of Philadelphia were less concentrated in the urban center of the city than the people in other urban hotspots like Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos. At the end, we'll look at the modern cities where these ancient cities were located and see how they're laid out. And that's an interesting little thought there. There was a couple of good reasons for this dispersion of the population. Number one, the city had been plagued with earthquakes for centuries. In AD 17, there was a major earthquake that completely wiped out the neighboring city of Sardis, and it practically destroyed Philadelphia as well. And during an earthquake, we know that safety is found in open spaces. You don't want to be walking around in the city with giant buildings towering over you while the ground's moving. You know, So a lot of historians think that this may be one reason that the population was less concentrated. They sought safety from the tremors um, outside of the city. And after the earthquake of AD 17, many ancient historians regard the generous relief that was granted to this city to repair the city from the earthquake. Uh, They regard that as a reason why 
they took on a new name of their city, Neo-Caesarea. And that means the new city of Caesar. They were very grateful to Emperor Tiberius at the time for providing that imperial relief. It'd be like, you know, the Rome's Red Cross Foundation or whatnot. So they were very grateful and they took on a name to honor the emperor, Neo Caesarea. Is it a coincidence that the name of the city of God is New Jerusalem? I don't think so. And he references New Jerusalem later in this letter. The city also took the epithet Flavia during Vespasian's reign. He was born Titus Flavius Vespasianus. Um, And that title of Flavia was taken to honor this emperor. These are all different titles that the city of Philadelphia has taken on over the years. And that title of Flavia could also point to another period of relief provided by that emperor, although we're not sure. The second reason for this spreading out of the population, Philadelphia was situated in an area of volcanic soil, which was specially suited for growing grapes, the vines. To grow crops, farmers need open land. And this was also a likely contributing factor. And not surprisingly, Dionysus, the god of wine, was their primary pagan deity in this city of Philadelphia. They were known throughout the Roman Empire for their wine production, and the modern city of Alasahir is still known for its wine production. But this volcanic soil wasn't specially suitable for subsistence crops like corn. And there was a shortage of corn in some time periods when they were... um, at the zenith of their power. They did produce a little corn, but it wasn't even enough to sustain their own city's population through times of bad harvest. So they would need to bring in corn, other types of foodstuffs from outside of the city. And in AD 92, and I want you to remember that 92 is only a few years before this book of Revelation is written. So this would have been fresh on the minds of the Philadelphians when they're being written to. In AD 92, Emperor Domitian issues an edict that required at least half of the vineyards in the Asian provinces under which the cities of these letters would come under. Half of the vineyards in the Asian provinces were to be cut down. So that (laughs) took a huge chunk of revenue out of the city of Philadelphia. That was their main crop, was the grapes that they produced. There are a couple different motives of this edict attributed to Domitian by scholars. The first is this thought that he was trying to protect Italian wine producers from their competition in Asia. That's possible. Or he was trying to encourage more corn production in Asia But Philadelphia specifically was met with this issue of their soil not being suitable for heavy corn production. And if you know a lot about agriculture, you know that some soil types are better for certain types of crops. 
And on top of the already fallen price of wine, probably because of the overproduction, with their vineyards cut down, Philadelphia couldn't financially sustain itself. And as you can imagine, this city quickly fell into disillusionment with the imperial system. They no longer wanted to honor the imperial system as before when they took a new name. So these previous titles, Neo-Caesarea and Flavia, were dropped by popular demand and Philadelphia was again favored. When we look at this letter from Christ to the church in Philadelphia, it seems apparent that he had their history in mind, and specifically this part of their history. He seems to be juxtaposing the character of their emperors with his own character. He lays them side by side in a comparison. And he's saying, I see how you've been betrayed by the same characters that you've honored. But I will not betray you. In fact, because you've kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you. And I will not betray you. And I will write on you the name of my God, not your Caesar. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I will write on you my new name. See, this concept of a new name was very familiar in Philadelphia. Now, let's take a look at these promises of God laid out in this letter a little more carefully. In verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my command to persevere. Now, the grammar would indicate that this phrase tells us why Jesus will keep who he's writing to from the hour of trial. Because you have kept, I also will keep you. Jesus is also going to do some keeping. But let's take a closer look at this phrase, because you have kept my command to persevere. The English word command is translated from the Greek word logos. And by far, the most common translation of logos is word. Far and away, that's the most common. Now, the fact that it is the most common translation in and of itself does not mean that this instance should be translated as word. But I just tell you that because it's, it's possible. It's not out of the realm of possibility that you'd translate this as word. And in fact, the translators of the King James Version chose to translate logos here as word. And I like the King James translation of this little phrase. Um, This is their rendering of the phrase, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. And I believe this actually hits a little closer to the intent of Jesus here. Patience is translated from hupomone. This is an endurance or perseverance. It's active. It's not a passive suffering, not a passive patience, but it's active. You're bearing up under something, under a trial um, or something that has come to test you. And this seems to be referring to the passion of Christ, Christ's endurance. 
his patience, his bearing up under suffering. This is his endurance of the cross. And Hebrews 12.2 actually connects this word hupomone and the cross for us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This church in Philadelphia is one that has kept the cross of Christ, his endurance, in the center of everything that they did. They were diligent to safeguard that basic tenet of the faith. They've kept the word of his endurance. We see how that fits nicely there. And it makes sense to us because we know that if we're saved, then he's going to keep us from the trial that is to come. And we'll look at that more now. And unfortunately, we have seen movement in the modern denominational churches away from the cross of Christ. There are apparently too many bad words, in quotes, associated with the cross. The S word, sin. Can't talk about it. The H word, hell. Scares people. The B word, blood. Can't talk about any of those things anymore. These aren't seeker-friendly terms, so they're largely swept under the rug, but they are good for one thing, and that is helping someone come to the realization that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. The blood of Christ is effective. Sin is what takes us out of the presence of God to begin with. It separates us from Him. If we take away people's consciousness that they are broken, that they are sinners, Jesus no longer fits into our lives. There's no need for Jesus. If I am inherently good, and all I have to do is look deep inside of me, then why did God have to give his only son for our sins? Why didn't the father take that cup of suffering when Jesus was pleading with him in the garden? Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus began to sweat great drops of blood as he was pleading with the Father to take this suffering, this endurance, away from him. There was no other way for God to redeem you and me but by the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. And you can be sure that God would have chosen to spare his son if there was any way possible for that to happen and still redeem us. Today, the Church of Philadelphia guards the cross of Christ as the center of all they do. This is speaking prophetically now, the current Church of Philadelphia. And because of this, Jesus says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. And just real quick for you, hour is hora, meaning a defined period of time or a season. Trial is Perasmos, meaning a temptation or simply a trial 
and specifically a trial in order to prove man's fidelity, integrity, or constancy. There's a proving aspect here. Therefore, this hour of trial is a predetermined period of time which serves as a test or a proving grounds for man's fidelity. And it contains a definite article, the. Jesus is referring to a specific hour of trial, the hour of trial, not generally to an hour of trial. And that's just one of many definite articles found in this verse. Jesus is very specific here. And I'll read it through, putting the emphasis on these definite articles so you get the idea of it. He says, I also will safeguard you from the hour of the trial, which is destined to be coming upon the entire inhabited earth, to put to the test the them who dwell upon the earth. Jesus is talking about a very specific period of time. And there's no doubt in my mind that what he's talking about is what we would call the tribulation period. That is what Jesus is referring to here. But I want to draw your attention especially to the Greek word ek. Ek can mean from or out of. And I remember that, and this may help you. If I don't like something, I go, Ick, and I spit it out, out of my mouth. So there you go. <laughs> Extra information for you. Those who take the post-tribulation view of the rapture will say that God is granting immunity, or in other words, preservation, to the saints through the tribulation. The problem with this is that virtually all the saints of the tribulation period are killed. I mean, by far and away the majority. There may be a few that survive, but we see in Revelation that most of them are killed. There are only those 144,000 Jews who are sealed. And they will evangelize a great multitude of Gentiles during those seven years, but those Gentiles that turn to Christ will shortly after that be killed. Revelation seven, nineteen through 14, bear with me while I reference a couple of verses. This passage tells us about those saints that come from the great tribulation. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their face before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
So those are the saints that come out of that period of tribulation. And Revelation 13, 7 says that it was granted to him, referring to the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. It was granted to the beast to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The very next verse, verse 8 in chapter 13, says that all who dwell on the earth will worship him, referring to the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, this tells us that there are two distinct groups of people on the earth during the period of tribulation. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and everyone else dwelling on the earth. If verse 7 said that the beast will overcome the saints, these saints can't include the church. Why? Because Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Certainly, I think that the uh, beast would be considered one of the ruling powers of hell. We know that in the ancient context, when we refer to gates of the city, the important people in the city would live near the gate, actually in the gate. Um, So the beast could definitely fit into that category as ruling hell. The gates of hell, those in control, would not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew 16, 18, if you want to check that out. And this seems to point to the fact that the church isn't around on the earth during the rule of Antichrist, which we know comes during the tribulation. Now, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This verse is telling us about the tribulation saints again, those who were saved during the tribulation. And it says that they had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God. There doesn't seem to be a strong Christian presence on the earth during the tribulation, because whoever does come to Christ will not have taken the mark of the beast, and therefore they will be able to be tracked down, hunted, basically, and killed. Two groups of people, those who take the mark of the beast and those who do not. Those who do not will be severely persecuted. Back in our text this morning, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Now remember, Revelation is written in AD 95. And Jesus said that this hour of trial is still in the future. So it had to have come after AD 95. I believe we haven't seen this hour of trial yet. 
But there are groups that will try to say that the major events of Revelation were fulfilled in about AD 70 when Jerusalem was sacked. And to, to make that supposition, you have to move the date of the writing of Revelation earlier in time. And they'll go anywhere from 65 to 68. And that's their attempt at making the prophecies in Revelation line up with the sack of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, I believe that's a hard position to take, both historically and biblically. Um, So I take the later date of about 95 for the date of writing. And if Revelation was written in 95, it can't be referring to this hour of trial as the sack of Jerusalem. That's just the long and short of it. So it is still to come. And he says it's coming on the whole world. This time of testing will be global, not local. It's not a local persecution like the sack of Jerusalem was. To test those who dwell on the earth. And this is the reason for the trial. To test those who dwell on the earth. Dwell here in the Greek is not oikeo, which we may expect. Oikeo is a more general dwell, but it's katoikeo. And that's a little bit more specific, and it carries the idea of being identified with something. So they dwell on the earth, and they are identified with the earth. Now, throughout Scripture, we as the body of Christ are told not to identify ourselves with the world. Romans 12.2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 3.18-20, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.13 These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We don't identify ourselves with the earth, with the world. And so we can't be called those who are identified with the world. By my count, this term, earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, is used 12 times in Revelation. And we've got a list for you. And those 12 times do include this one in chapter 3, verse 10. Each time, we see the word katoikeo used, this specific word for dwell. And it's clear that these earth dwellers are the enemies of Christ all throughout the book of Revelation. While you're writing those down, I'll go through them and read the verses to you. Revelation 6, verse 9 and 10, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 8.13, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Revelation 11.10 contains two instances of this phrase, earth dwellers. And this is concerning the death of the two prophets, or otherwise known as witnesses. It says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. God's prophets tormented the earth dwellers, and that's why they're rejoicing that they were just killed. You know, instead of Christmas, you have Dead Prophets Day. Everybody sends gifts to each other and makes merry. Revelation 12, 12, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Revelation 13, 8, I think I already went to that one. Revelation 13, 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Revelation 14, 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Revelation 17, 1 and 2, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Last one, Revelation seventeen eight. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Every instance that we see earth dwellers talked about in Revelation it both uses the term katoikeo to denote that specific um, identity with the earth, and they're not good people. They are Christ rejectors. They're the enemies of the cross. And this certainly can't be the church that he's talking about. If we lump the church in with the earth dwellers, which I don't think we should do, then... Um, he would have to be saying that the trial is coming on the church. Do we see how that fits in there? The church is completely separate from these earth dwellers. And Jesus says that the hour of trial is coming on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. I don't think that we can fit the church into this category. Now, verse 11, Jesus says, and he says, behold, he's calling special attention to this that he's about to say. 
Behold, look at this. I am coming quickly. We see the message of his coming falling on the heart of this church a little differently than the churches before. To the church in Philadelphia, in this letter, the promise of his coming lands on their heart as a loving admonition. Hang on just a little longer, because I'm coming for you quickly. But to Pergamos and to Thyatira, this message of his coming landed as a threat. To Sardis, it was a warning. Only the church that finds themselves in a right relationship with Jesus actually finds comfort in his coming. And this doesn't just apply to churches. To an individual who doesn't know Christ personally, the news of his coming falls on their heart as a threat or as a warning. But to someone who knows Christ, as their Lord, as their Savior, his appearance is the most glorious thing we can think of. That's the hope that we have, is his appearing. It falls on different hearts differently, all depending on your relationship with him. It should be a joyous occasion for us when we meet our Savior in the air. And our hearts should long for that reunion And I pray that he comes quickly. What do you feel when you think about his imminent return? What emotions does that stir up in you? If you think about this, this may be telling of where your relationship is with him. Is it, oh Jesus, just wait one more week so I can get these things straightened out. You know, give me a month to clean up my act before you come back? Is it that, or is it come quickly, Lord Jesus? It's a good litmus test for where you are. We don't see the phrase, I come quickly again, until the very end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 22.7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Then in verse 12 of chapter 22 again, he says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. That's exciting. And the book closes with verses 20 and 22. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Why in the world does Jesus hammer on the fact that he's coming quickly? Maybe it's because he's coming quickly. He's coming soon. He's coming suddenly. And that is the real root of what this word means. He's coming suddenly. You know, a tachometer measures your revolutions per minute. We get the same root for tachometer, tach, tachy, from the Greek word that is being used to say quickly. He's coming quickly. When these things begin, when the prophecies of Revelation 
start being fulfilled, it's going to be like a snowball rolling down a hill. It's going to pick up speed. And at the very beginning of this book, he says these things will come to pass quickly. And he uses the same word. Once this starts, it's going to pick up speed. And Jesus actually says, if the days weren't shortened, there would be no flesh that survived. It's going to start moving quickly once it begins. But I believe the first event to happen in this prophetic timeline is the return of Jesus. His imminent return should be ever on our minds. And this idea that Christ could return at any moment was heavy on the minds of the apostles and the early church fathers. Now, they didn't believe in a quote-unquote pre-tribulation rapture in the same jargon that we use today, but they did believe that Christ could come at any moment. And they were very clear about this in their writings. And I'm not going to take the time to dig into that now, but I think that we probably will before Revelation is done. Jesus says, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Jesus speaks as though they already have the crown. This is a Stephanos. Um, It's like a, a crown, a wreath that you would give a victor in the games. They would be crowned. They ran the race well. They've received their reward. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Something can't be taken from you unless it's already in your possession. So if this crown can be taken from us, we apparently have it now. That's an interesting thought. And you know, this crown, although we may not be able to plainly see it at the moment, the crown is more real than your favorite baseball cap. Think about that. I'm saying that this crown spoken of by Jesus is more real than your favorite baseball cap. And we won't get into why, but um, our reality is basically a digital simulation of a larger reality in which I would argue this crown would fit in. He's saying, let no man rob you of your prize. And throughout scripture, we see examples of those who were robbed of something, whether because of their own actions or the actions of others. And I'll list out a few for you. Esau lost his place to Jacob, Genesis 25, 34, and Genesis 27, 36. Reuben lost his place to Judah in Genesis 49, 4, and 8. For his action at Meribah, Moses was superseded by Joshua. That's from Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 3. Saul lost his place to David, 1 Samuel 16. Shebna, we talked about earlier, lost his place to Eliakim. And that is in Isaiah 22, 15 through 25. We looked at this text last week, this text from Isaiah, in connection to the key of David. And I want to reiterate one more time that the key of David 
granted its holder access to the king. And that access could be affirmed or denied to other people. And Jesus says that he now holds the key of David. And he is the only one with the authority to grant or deny access to the king of kings. He holds that key. Joab and Abiathar lost their places to Benaiah and Zadok, 1 Kings 2.25. Elijah was superseded by Elisha, 1 Kings 19.13-16. Let no man rob you of your crown. We want to finish the race well with our eyes fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. Now Jesus says in verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. So this is the promise to the overcomer contained in this letter to the church of Philadelphia. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Jesus is referring to the believer as a pillar, and this stresses his the believer's future stability and security. Think about a pillar. Remember, Philadelphia was hit hard by earthquakes. On more than one occasion, earthquakes crippled the city. And I am sure that some stability, some security, sounds really nice to them. From Jesus, I will make him who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God, giving him that stability. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's literally going to make us into pillars. Thank goodness. What kind of an existence would that be? But rather, he's using pillar in a metaphorical sense. And it's similar to how it's used in 1 Timothy 3.15 and Galatians 2.9. 1 Timothy 3.15 reads, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Referring to the church as a pillar, metaphorically. Galatians 2.9 And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, dot, dot, dot. So here it refers to James, Cephas, and John. This is Paul writing. He refers to them as pillars course, not actual pillars, but metaphorical pillars. Since we can be sure that the future temple of God does not need our help supporting it, we can take this reference to be speaking of our firm standing in him. Jeremiah 1.18 reads, For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land. Again, referring to a pillar 
it says, and he shall go out no more. And the Greek is more emphatic here. It's the idea of it is never, ever go out again. There's more emphasis placed on that. And I mentioned this at the beginning, but one of the dangers during an earthquake is debris from the surrounding buildings falling on top of you. So safety during a tremor would be found outside the city. But in the temple of God, which is actually the future city of the new Jerusalem, um, we're told in Revelation 21, 22, that God himself is the temple. There is no temple found in the city, but the city itself functions as the temple. So in the temple of God, the new Jerusalem, we won't have to flee outside the city to be safe. Rather, we'll stand firm and we'll be safe inside the city. We will go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now, there's a historical reference to pillars with names inscribed on them that is not universally agreed upon, but I think it's worth our consideration. It's said that certain citizens of a Roman city who contributed something valuable to that city would have a pillar erected in one of their pagan temples in their honor, and their name would actually be inscribed on that pillar. And I think of this as being similar to our practice of for example, labeling a bench outside a museum with the name of a large donor, something like that. And at my high school, there was a brick walkway with the names of families who contributed to the district on the bricks in that walkway. So it's the same idea here. These Romans erected a pillar in honor of important citizens. And this Roman practice may even be where we get the term pillar in the community. We've heard that, a pillar in their church, a pillar in their community. This may be where that comes from. And if Jesus is making reference to this historical practice, we could take it to mean that we are seen as an important part of God's community. I'm not going to like the sound of that. We can also build this historical case with biblical support. And I'll invite you to look at 1 Kings 7.21, and you can mark 2 Chronicles 3.15 and 17 as well. These passages recall these two pillars that were set before the temple built by Solomon. And these pillars don't seem to be structurally relevant to the temple, but rather there was some meaning connected to them. There is a name inscribed on each of these two pillars. The right pillar was called Jachin, meaning he will establish. The left pillar was called Boaz, meaning standing in strength. There are pillars, and this is the Temple of Solomon. There were pillars with names inscribed on them. 
Exodus 28, 36 through 38 also speaks of something being inscribed on the plate of gold on the forehead of the high priest. That inscription would read, Holiness to the Lord. Now, I want to introduce you to an idea that hasn't gotten a lot of press in the literature surrounding this verse, but it's worth considering. Revelation 21.16 tells us about the New Jerusalem, and that verse says that the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he, referring to an angel, measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Now, pay attention to this because it's important, but we won't dive into it. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. There are three dimensions mentioned right there, not our usual length and width. There's an added dimension in this new city of Jerusalem, but that's not what we're getting at. If we look at modern cities in Turkey, their streets appear remarkably disorganized. And I've got a couple examples that I pulled up on Google Maps that we can look at. I actually just pulled them from the modern cities of the cities of the seven churches. So which one we got? Bergama. That is the modern-day Smyrna. And you can see how the streets are a bit disorganized. Let's look at the next one. This is Izmir. Um, this is a, I'm sorry, this is Smyrna. Bergama was Pergamos. Izmir is Smyrna. And this Izmir is a thriving metropolis. And this sort of look with all the urbanization goes up and around. Um, it's a large, large city. But you can see how disorganized it looks. Now to the next one. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that Turkish name, but that's Ephesus. And we've got the same idea going on there. Although a little more organized, um, probably just because it's not as big, um, Ephesus is still a little bit crazy. Now... We'll look at Alasa here. This is where Philadelphia was. And you notice in the center of the city, it's very symmetrical. The streets are not going every which way that they were in the other ones that we looked at. And you can pull up Google Maps for yourself and look at the cities and the streets in the different cities of Turkey. And you can see the disorganization contrasted with Alasa here. It seems that the center of the city, which we would generally think of as being the oldest part of it before it started to sprawl out, is organized fairly symmetrically. And I wonder if this organization stems from the letter that they got talking about the New Jerusalem, which is a square. Interesting thought. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not. Um, but it is too curious not to point out. It's possible that the order and beauty of the New Jerusalem really stood out in the minds of the recipients of this letter, and especially in contrast with their crumbling infrastructure from the earthquakes. 
Interesting to consider. And Jesus says, and I will write on him my new name. Now Jesus has purchased us with his blood and now he holds the rights to us, so to speak. This entitles him to put his name on us. And what a wonderful name that is. We saw three instances of names being written on us. And these three instances denote three slightly different ideas. Ambassadorship, citizenship, and ownership. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him, number one, the name of my God. When is the only other time recorded in scripture that Jesus refers to the Father as, quote, my God? Do you remember when that is? When he's on the cross. Why is that? Why does he not say Father when he's on the cross? What else did he say while he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He couldn't relate to him as a father in that moment. Why have you forsaken me? And now he refers to the father again as my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The name of my God denotes ambassadorship. We've talked about God's name in relation to us as basically we are operating under his authority when we take his name. We've talked about that before. The name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The name of the city written on the believer. That denotes citizenship. We are now citizens of that city, you know, when that whole thing unfolds. And the last, Jesus says, and I will write on him my new name. And that denotes his possession of us, ownership. As the name of Jehovah, holiness to the Lord, was on that golden plate on the high priest's forehead, the saints will also bear the name of their heavenly royal priesthood openly as they are set apart and holy to him. Now, the beast's followers also have a mark on their forehead, Revelation 13, 16, and 17. And the great harlot has a name on her forehead. It reads, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I'll leave you with something that we can all remember. Take the name, not the number. Take the name of our Savior, not the number of the beast. And the letter closes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have a spiritual ear to hear, you will find things amazingly applicable in these letters to your own life. 
That is if you have ears to hear. And an ear here <laughs> is just a heart with the right attitude. Do you have a heart with the right attitude to accept the things that Jesus is telling you in these letters? Philadelphia received no condemnation. Only good things were said by Christ. But not all of the letters are that way. In fact, a couple of the letters receive no good things from Christ. Our attitude should be gleaning anything we can, whether good or bad. And certainly there are some bad things that have applied to me. You know, I'll be the first to admit that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, that is, said and is presently saying, to the churches. Churches, plural. These letters can also be applied to churches in general. The body of Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.